Welcome to the Deck 4 Podcast. There's a companion newsletter for each episode. You can find out more about the series, our friends and supporters at georgefairbrother.com and follow us on Facebook at Deck 4 Publishing. Hope you enjoy the program. And thank you for joining us once again. We're back with Gary Wells and our deep dive into Elvis. That's the way it is. Some of the uh, really fascinating stuff for me was actually behind the the scenes at the hotel when they're doing the um, preparations and all of the effort and the merchandising and the logistics of um, getting people into the showroom and out of the showroom. The behind the scenes stuff I actually find really fascinating. In fact, I found that more fascinating this time when I went back to watch watch it again. The exact same thing happened to me. Uh <sighs> You know, you get so used to a film, you get so next to it, you love it, that's great. But when you go into watching it with a certain goal in mind, you you do see different things. And the preparation was fascinating. And what I thought this time was Las Vegas would have loved this film. I mean, it was a it's a great brochure for their playground, the city there, for what goes into a show. And even, you know, it's a documentary in the truest sense because it's here's how it's done. The the little clips where we're, we see the signs being made, those black signs where the two guys are, are slapping the paint on there and they make the sign. I mean, where's their documentary? That's riveting. To see the preparation is fascinating. And I noticed distinctly when I watched it recently for this, the juxtaposition between the hotel getting ready and Elvis getting ready and how they're about to converge when he when he hits the stage. Fascinating that each was doing their part in the hotel. Lots going on there to get ready. Um, so we the, the rehearsals move on from Hollywood to Las Vegas and they start to rehearse with the Imperials and with the Sweet Inspirations and also with Millie Kirkham, who in those days was um, singing soprano before Kathy Westmoreland, of course. Now, something that I'm going to be very interested in your opinion about, when Elvis gets together with the Sweet Inspirations, they're talking about Gigi Gamble. His wife's parents were keeping the little boy and they wouldn't let him let him take him out of town. So they had one child in California, one back there, and they, they were traveling back and forth and it was a little too much for him. So they, but it is his child. Can you take his child away? Take his child? It's not really his child. It was uh, his yeah. wife's child by a oh. previous marriage. They're talking about Gigi Gamble. The Elvis is explaining that he had left the... Um, uh, left the entourage for family reasons. And he's talking about Gigi's parental arrangements, the fact that, you know, there was child custody issues and all of this sort of stuff. And it, it sort of struck me. I could sort of see why they did it because it says that, you know, people in the entertainment business have the same sort of family problems and issues that everybody else does. But given that it was sort of in real time. And the film only came out a few weeks, really, or, or a couple of months after all this was happening. And it's obviously still very new. I mean, we can talk about it now 50 years later, and it's not going to hurt anyone, you wouldn't think. But just wonder, given that was a very intimate, um, or sort of a conversation about some very intimate uh, matters, um, I just wonder what that bit, why that was in. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> a lot of questions. Um yeah, so, okay, the camera's rolling. Let's get some candid shots of uh, King inter- interacting with his, his people and with his band and his singers. So, 
obviously that's legit. That's what that's what's happening here. And but to zero in on that and the camera, and as we said before, you know, Elvis is well aware he's being filmed and everybody's aware. And it's not just for it's it's a for a feature film. And the conversation comes to Gigi. So I guess it's kind of on Presley because he explains exactly where he is, leaving no leaving nothing out. Um and Again, normal conversation questions. Well, well, why can't he do this? Why can't he do that? And Presley has to explain in detail about their family issues. And again, it's the times, I guess, nowadays with litigation and whatnot, there would have been, that would never have made it in there. But maybe it's an indication of Elvis's being really candid. Maybe he, maybe it's an, it's, it's an indication, because I said earlier, he knows he's being filmed. So how real, how candid is he really being? Well, here he is seemingly having forgotten. You could say that Elvis must have forgotten he was being filmed because he's talking about somebody's personal life, but maybe not that. I don't think he ever forgot the camera was on him at any time in his life, but maybe it's a good indication that it's just about as real and as raw as we ever see Presley. And it is an interesting conversation because, yeah, it's it's about somebody's family issues. People are being named and children are not being named, but you know, referenced and it's a sticky one, but it's it's always fascinated me since I was a kid seeing that, that there's this interesting custody thing going on and we hear it and they, they, they hear it in the theater. Yeah. I, I just wonder, you know, that there was obviously a conscious decision to include that by Dennis Sanders when they were, were, were doing the edit. Yeah, you did mention that, 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 that it was a decision still. You're right. L- let's use that conversation. Maybe even he, he didn't think anything about the personal nature of the conversation. He just thought there's a nice, a nice candid moment. Maybe like, again, the times were different. I do, I did learn that Gigi was there. There's a famous, well, there's a few famous pictures of Elvis and Tom Jones when Tom Jones visited Graceland. And there's a picture up against the beautiful breeze block wall of the carport with Elvis and Tom and a few of the guys. And Gigi is in that picture. So points, points for Gigi, even though he got his personal stuff talked about in a, in a, in a major motion picture. Yeah. And look, I mean, it was very complimentary. I mean, obviously, everybody was very yeah. sad that he had gone. So he, yeah. uh, so he was obviously someone that was enormously well-liked. Uh-huh. Um, and sadly, in fact, in 2005, um, he, according to um, Graceland's, the official Graceland website, um, was struck by a vehicle while walking to, walk in, walking to work in Nashville, um, succumbed to his injuries at the age of 61. So there's a sad postscript to that particular part of the film. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, I just learned that recently myself. That's a, that's a tough way to go. As you said, everything's starting to converge. Uh, everybody's working very hard and opening night is looming. The next rehearsals are actually on stage in the showroom. That's quite interesting. They do a great version of Mary in the Morning and um, there's a little bit of fun but some serious work as well. The lads um, from the Memphis Mafia are sort of perhaps getting in the way. Would that be a bit too harsh? Well, no and yes. Like, you know... Even when I was a kid watching this, something about the way Joe Esposito would see throw an ice cube or something there, something about the horseplay, I thought to myself, you know, do you not know who this is? Do you not know the majesty of the film he's making? And, you know, of course, they, they didn't know that about the film. And, and the guy, I had to remember, this is what they did all the time. I mean, it, it, you read any book you read, 
the lads got up to it. They got up to all kinds of shenanigans. And that was, I mean, that was Elvis almost as much a part of Elvis's makeup as the singing was, the horseplay and yeah, the, and the goofing around. So yeah. it's no surprise that they're goofing around. But something about this, that scene always rubbed me a bit of the wrong way. Like I wanted to yell at the guys, leave them alone, or is this the time? You know, it was a, it was a, an interesting scene. You're right. And maybe it is a bit... Uh, a, at the wrong time for them to be horsing around because the band they've got the, the the orchestra everybody is there everybody is is working very hard they're focused they're concentrating they're trying to get it right and you know in as much as um, Joe Esposito was you know an essential part of the entourage and did great work um, liaising with um, you know Colonel Parker and his road manager so he was absolutely critical to the operation but you just sort of wonder if you're one of the musicians there and you're trying to keep things professional and working you know you just sort of wonder if you might have thought oh come on guys please you know we're trying to work here and I always thought about the one too where I guess one of the mafia prompts James to start playing yes yes that's right <laughs> And 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 <laughs> King takes umbrage and he says, James, you know, the way he the way he talks to James too is is telling, you know, because like I run this band. They don't tell you when to start and scream an eagle and all that. So that was interesting too, because you could tell that Presley was jokey, but still a bit ticked. Yeah, like don't don't get in the way of me and my band right now. Yeah, yeah, we're working. Um very quietly spoken, but Obviously, a man that you don't mess with, and that is Alex Shufi, who was the hotel president. Um, he passed away in 2007. Now, he said something interesting here, and once again, this is alluded to in Jerry Hopkins' article, the fact that they squeeze 4,100 people into the 2,000 or 2,100-seat showroom, and uh, Jerry Hopkins, in his article, alludes to the fact that the fire wardens would be getting very upset about tables and blockages in exits and things like that, but funnily enough, the objections seemed to melt away when they were given front row tickets so there was <laughs> but even Alex even Alex Shufi when he's talking about this you know we put 4,100 people in he's sort of got a bit of a sheepish smile when he says that I thought <laughs> yeah like he's almost apologizing and you know the good old days when safety was well if we can manage safety fine but otherwise get the tables in and yeah jam them in because Presley's in town. Jam him in. Yeah, get him in there. He uh, began um, as a 50... In fact, I think a bit of a classic Hollywood American dream story. He was driving to um, California to try and find work after the war. His car broke down in Las Vegas. He picked up a $50 a week job as a bookkeeper, um, ended up um, running... Uh, the International Hotel, having run the Flamingo as well previously and had was known as a, um, a really top hotel manager. In fact, here it is. Uh, this is from his uh, obituary in the Las Vegas Sun. When Shufi took over as president of the Flamingo in 1967, it was $25 million in the red. The next year, the resort showed a $15 million profit. And it was Shufi that had recognised Elvis's value to the hotel virtually from the very first moment and probably one of the few times where the colonel um, was being pressured rather than putting the pressure on. Uh, Alex Shufi had said to the colonel, look, let's tie up some proper contracts here. This is going to be huge. Colonel Parker apparently said, no, look, let's just wait to see how he goes. This was in 1969, the first engagement. But uh, Alex Shufi prevailed and um, the contract was signed and uh, he became an enormous asset for the hotel, um, you know, right up until 1976. Again, there's another fascinating player. I mean, Las Vegas history, 
I think I first stumbled on him when I saw a picture of, of Presley backstage at the International with Shufi. And you see Colonel Tom in the background with one of those lab coats with Elvis at the International plastered all over it. Like, anyways. Um, but Shufi's wife, Joan, is next to him. And I remember being struck by this woman. And I thought, who is she? And I put it out there on, on one of the social medias. And, you know, people know Alex Shufi. People who are, you know, Las Vegas historians, they know him. That's a, that's a major player. And I like to think that when Colonel went up against a guy like Shufi, I mean, Elvis and Colonel are driving this big bus as well, but I mean, Shufi and Las Vegas and the International, uh, you know, they weren't going to be, they weren't going to be snowed by uh, the Colonel. So, Shufi's an interesting guy too, a major player for sure. Now, put his name up there. Like, why wouldn't Sanders have just said Alex Shufi? Like, who is this person? So, yeah, so just from, once again, from his um, obituary, Alexander James Shufi rose from humble beginnings in a Brooklyn orphanage to become a Las Vegas gaming giant, successively running the Sahara, the Flamingo, and the International Hotel. And I gather he actually retired um, either around the time or very shortly after the hotel was sold to the Hilton um, in 1972. And then really withdrew from public life effectively. He came back uh, to do a, an oral history um, project many years later when he related the story about how the contract with um, Elvis and Colonel Parker was signed. But apart from that, basically just lived quietly and passed away at 91. Um, there's something it must be about the desert air. Um, a lot of these Las Vegas titans do live to uh, a ripe old age, don't they? They sure do. 91, not bad. And, and you know, he wasn't working up until then. He, he was relaxing and enjoying. It says here 60 years he lived in Las Vegas. I mean, yeah, it's it's got to be that, there's a guy, there's a guy whose story, you know, we should look into this guy because that's fascinating. And yeah, that's a major player, a Brooklyn orphanage. And, and look where he ends up. Unreal. Uh, we're getting to nitty gritty time. Uh, Elvis is, you know, the rehearsals are continuing. In the meantime, um, the people are trying to work out where to fit. Uh, all these big corporate parties and how many, you know, how they can fit people in. And it looks like an awful lot of work. And of course, we see it happening once, but two shows a night for a month, um, three shows a night, a couple of times towards the end of the engagement. Like, just the amount of work, the logistics of it all is just mind-boggling, isn't it? Fascinating. It was really fascinating. I, I really thought about it this time because I think at one time, at one point, the guy mentions the Ford Corporation, does he not? Uh, where are they? Yeah, where are they going to sit? And it matters because of the relationship between these corporations and Las Vegas. The free stuff will give you the seating, but you know, wh where do we seat you? Is this is he going to be okay with that seat? And it's funny years down years down the road, you hear a lot of the the shows uh, that have been released since then. And Elvis a couple times mentions from the stage. Uh, I hear there's people from the Ford Corporation here or something tonight, so give him a hand, whatever. And he jokes that he expects a new Lincoln to be outside of his uh, hotel room in the morning. <laughs> yeah. So you, you can tie that in with these guys hovering over the seating chart. And yeah, like you say, twice a night, who's coming, who's going to sit where, a lot of hard work. Okay, so we're getting to the um, uh, the show now. There's the, I, guess, I assume he's the greeter for the VIP guest, Gene Bone. Um, couldn't find anything about him anywhere. When I Googled Gene Bone, I came up a whole list of medical <laughs> related stuff. <laughs> 
Um, but, you know, there's some interesting people there that are coming. We see Cary Grant, of course, Sammy Davis Jr., Juliet Prowse, um, Xavier Cougar and Charo. Um, anyone that you were particularly interested in who was turning up? Well, I love it that um, when I interact with the classic movie crowd on Twitter, um, you know, they're, you know, Cary Grant, Kate Hepburn, Clark Gable heavy. And I always like to say, you know, there is a couple of your favorite actors that understood Presley and liked him. The Cary Grant thing is fascinating. Cary Grant is shown, you see him a couple times in this movie, but there's wonderful footage of the after show party when Cary Grant comes into where they're having the party. And he and Elvis talk, I mean, not for a long time, but they talk in a way yes, that, that's right. and you're yeah. looking at Elvis Presley and Cary Grant. And maybe it's a moment where they don't have to be Elvis and Carrie. They can just be, I enjoyed your show and they talk and it's fascinating. And the Sammy Davis I love too because you can find pictures all through Elvis's career of him talking to Sammy. So Sammy, who I think could talk to Fence Post, he, he had no problem being friends with people. But he's there with Elvis too and he's enjoying the show and... Juliet Prowse as well is interesting because as we know, they kind of date it during GI Blues. And so people are, you know, returning and it's a Vegas thing and Elvis is there. Uh, Dale Robertson, cowboy actor that when I was a kid, I didn't know who he was at all. Um, but he comes in briefly as well and you see him at the after party and he's really kind of uh, – passively introducing his wife to Elvis, almost really kind of reverent. It's really fascinating. So the stars, and again, a great brochure thing for Elvis. Look at the people. You could be in the same showroom, not only with Elvis, but Cary Grant. Oh, look at there, Sammy Davis. So brilliant of Sanders to have put that in, you know, to show how we roll here in the desert. Okay, so we see uh, Elvis is obviously just getting very close to showtime now. He's very nervous. Quite a nice moment there. Shows a very human side. We see the uh, performance uh, aspects. There's a sequence of um, uh, songs from probably, I think, the first four or five shows, I think, uh, they shot. Um, do you have a particular musical highlight or anything that stands out for you in terms of the performance? Uh, uh, the performance itself, again, when I was a kid, first watching this movie, enamored of his hair in King Creole, for example, uh, <laughs> to see him so disheveled so early in the show, even, you know, uh, Aloha from Hawaii, the hair is perfect and it stays that way the whole time. So early on, he is, but you know what, that tells me he is working it and this is what happens when I when I get down to business. There's a couple of he's um, rehearsing "Bridge Over Troubled Water" and "Poke Salad Annie," and those performances on stage and on the records um, they are two standouts for me. Um, it's funny, "Bridge Over Troubled Water" is so notable as a Simon and Garfunkel song, and it's it's fascinating that it was Art Garfunkel with his slight sort of gentle voice that sang on, on their legendary recording, Presley's, I don't know, his performance, see, he gets, he gets into a song, finds the, 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 the things about it that he can relate to and blows them up. And he makes it his own, is, is again, understating it so much. Bridge Over Troubled Water is, is a fantastic performance by him. Poke Salad Annie, of course, is a juggernaut. I mean, 
almost any recording uh, on stage of him doing that is just stunning. Um, I'm a big fan of the songs from the record that came out. So I'm not sure of the sequence exactly. Maybe we could we could we could go through a bit of the show. All right. So obviously they start off with um, "That's All Right," um, and uh, as you say, I mean, it, it just uh, just before and just as Elvis comes on stage, he he really is looking fantastic. Yes. It's a you know, it's just a really great moment there. I've lost you. That's a great a, a great re- rendition yes. of that one as well. Uh, Patch it up. I, I think patch it up. And I, I don't know that that was. I don't think I've really heard that later. Maybe 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 once or twice, but that was a real showstopper, and that is just a joyous thing. Just they're just having so much fun, and Ronnie Tut is just great drumming. Jerry Chef's bass in Patch It Up is is really quite incredible. And then we have our old friend from RCA, Lionel Hudson, having such a great time, looking great, looking great too with his little scarf on. I love it. Yeah, that's that's a that's a joyous a joyous moment. You know, Sweet Caroline, Bridge Over Troubled Water, um, a medley of some of the. Uh, um, earlier hits. Interesting how Suspicious Minds evolved from the recorded version, which had been a number one um, actually quite recently uh, before the film, how that was uh, changed live to be a real fast-paced, real showstopper. I think that real. I, I personally think the live version of Suspicious Mind was was really just so much better than the recorded one. Quite honestly, the Suspicious Minds podcast, this, the series of podcasts about the one song we could do. I grew up with Aloha from Hawaii, so think about the songs he does there. That's the first versions I heard of almost every one of of those recordings, and the Suspicious Minds in Aloha from Hawaii is, well, it's indicative of how he did it on stage in the 70s. It is, yes, it's much faster pace. Right off the bat, the tempo is faster. And it's it's a showpiece. It's the bridge, he breaks it down, jokes about his, 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 his clothes ripping and whatnot. And it's a really, I mean, there's one version, I think, from, from this era, 70, that is on one of the, the, the latest box sets that came out that is like nine minutes long. It, it's magnificent to hear it, to think about being in the room and, and, and to seeing him perform that. It's funny, though, you record the song in such a way, you obviously have a strong feeling for it. I mean, you can buy the box sets and hear the, the alternate takes, the rehearsals of that. We work hard on it. We, we get it to where we want it. It's a magnificent song. It's quite often considered his, his best recording ever. And then... When you present it live, you you kind of change it. You make it a little bit of a different animal. Now, right off the bat, you can say, well, perhaps if you did it note by note from the recording, it doesn't quite work in a live setting. Um, I understand that. But the changes are good ones, and it's still a magnificent recording, but you're right, it is quite different. But in defense of the original recording... When I was setting up uh, writing articles about the best Elvis Presley songs ever and really trying to figure out, because it's a hard job, all of his recordings, all of his really good recordings, and trying to reappreciate Suspicious Minds, the recorded, the studio version, if you really get the headphones on and really listen, like it, it is magnificent in defense of the studio version. The, the live one's a different animal. 
but it is quite something. And it was really what you'd call a showstopper, I guess. There's also a little diversion there uh, where the International Fan Club representative Elvis presents him with the um, tandem bicycle that uh, he and Joe had uh, ridden around the MGM lot that goes to Luxembourg to a fan convention, which all looks very sensible and reasonable. And once again, we come back to what was the motivation behind what is going to be shown. And then we get to the Elvis impersonators in Luxembourg and it sort of gets a little bit weird. Um. <laughs> it gets, yeah, I, well, I, it gets very weird. Um, <laughs> he, I, my, my first thought, my first thought, let's get this out of the way, was the pacing uh, where this shows up in the film um, was odd. Like, I don't know where you would put it. But once we get to the stage, I'm thinking concert film, let's roll. The only thing I'll say about that is, is again, fascinating about how popular he was overseas and, you know, never having appeared over there seemed to only make him bigger because he was this mythical American figure who we never got to see. And, you know, this is the bike that he's on. That's a fascinating little part too. Um, the last guy they show, I think, in the jean jacket looks a bit like Elvis Costello after a, a rough night at the pubs or whatever. He's he's not even, I don't know if you call it singing, but he's doing something. But I had to give him some props afterwards because he's he's tapping into the primal thing that Elvis has. Like, you know, he's back. He's not this Vegas Elvis who is singing to Cary Grant and his buds, but he's got the primal thing going, and that's okay from a certain, you know, I don't want to hear the whole song the guy sings. Uh, give me the snippet and get me out. But it shows you the spectrum, and it shows you also that as early as 1970, this tribute artist thing had already sprung up. So that's a fascinating diversion. Funny where he put it in the film. To look at the film as a whole uh, in the context of the time and perhaps with looking back with a benefit of hindsight, how do you see it as as a whole? Do you think, um, given that we now know what, what Dennis was, Dennis Sanders was trying to achieve, do you think he achieved what he wanted to? Um, he was very confident about it. He told, as I think I alluded to earlier, he told Jerry Hopkins, one, it's going to make an absolute fortune, and two, it's going to change, it's going to change documentaries stylistically. So Dennis certainly wasn't hesitant in talking it up. Which makes perfect sense to me. I mean, would have been devastating for a lot of people for Dennis to have said, you know what, didn't quite get it. This is going to be... You might as well go the other way and say, look out, because Hollywood's about to change with my film. I, I can see him saying that. Uh, it confirms that, you know, he, he thought that he nailed it. He, he got the whole sociological thing, all the different fans. It is of its time. It's definitely 1970. My neighbor, bless her, said, I've got this Elvis movie here I don't want. So, of course, I, I went over there and she handed me, that's the way it is. But it was the special edition from 2001, I think. I watched it and I was almost heartbroken because it was different from the 1970, obviously. Little nuances, little scenes weren't there. And I was sad. Of course, I've come to really appreciate that version now. I think it's excellent. But it shows you that here's a great moment in Elvis's career and life. Unfortunately, the way it was made, very 1970. Audiences' today might not grasp the majesty of the man at the time with this document. So we'll take that footage and we'll present it in a way that, that audiences can understand and 
you will see what we're trying to say about this man at this point. About Sanders, I have to say, and this is the one difference from the the 0-1 version that hurt me in my soul, but when when he finishes Can't Out Falling in Love, Sanders decides to shoot it from way behind the orchestra. You see in the immediate foreground, the band, the orchestra, you see Elvis gesturing with his arms in the air. The curtain begins to come down and the people began to begin to stand up and I'm telling you I'm actually fighting it back a little bit now it is emotional because it is a great depiction of a triumph and I always add in what we all know about Elvis's life and his career uh, the kind of inherent sadness in the story and to see him at such a conquering moment with his arms in the air and the timing of all of that with the curtain coming down, it is a magnificent... I don't even know if Sanders understood. Perhaps he couldn't have because of the aura of the Elvis of the next seven years and the next 50. But they, they, his boys converge on him when the curtain is down, the show is over. That big towel goes around his neck. And when he gestures back at the camera... There is something emotional about it, George. There's something, there, like you were with me from the beginning, good morning, Hollywood camera, and from there, I have conquered the world. You've been there with me. How about that? Not too bad, eh? He's gesturing that I, you know, how was that? Okay, with the okay symbol. And it's, I'm telling you, it's emotional. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's a really, yeah, I agree. I actually think it's a much better film than I always thought it was for me it was almost a bit of a i don't know but not for one of a better expression a bit of a poor relation to elvis on tour and it, it, it's and I, i've sort of actually looked at it probably very differently this time and probably appreciate it a lot more than i have previously i i agree those of us that have been to las vegas in the last 20 or 30 years and looked around and saw you know what what it what it has become wonderful in its own way still but certainly not the the Las Vegas of mid-century that we love so much if for nothing else it's it's a great window into you know Las Vegas in the summer at at a at a big moment when a big player was in town and you know I find I always end up watching it in August around the anniversary of his death it's part of my little summer festival and it it ties in the thing with Las Vegas, you know, heat, the desert, the the way the the city worked in terms of entertainment and Elvis. So you talk Elvis on tour, perhaps more of a straightforward concert film, aside from some of the the older clips they use. Um, but a lot of it is just more performance uh, in different venues. This this gives you that Las Vegas thing. Um, and it, it gives you, you know, some of the shots, you know, the signs being put up and the, the show being put on in Las Vegas. So with this film, you not only get Presley in his prime, and I've come to accept that that's the way it is. It's my favorite Elvis Presley album. And 69 to 70 is the pinnacle for me. So you get him in his prime singing wonderful songs. And you get the Las Vegas thing that we all like too. So, yeah, when you when you look at it for some for a, a podcast like this, and you dig into certain little aspects, uh, it does punch things up, and it makes you really appreciate it more. And 
yeah, I think I like it even more now than I ever did, if that's if that's possible. I didn't think it was, but now it's probably not surprising. Colonel Parker wasn't wasn't one hundred percent happy with um the final result. One of his objections was the fact that um they had focused on some of the catering at the hotel, the big sides of meat, the you know, the opulence of the surroundings. He was concerned that people in some of the less affluent uh cities that might have um come to see the film perhaps had to make some sacrifices that week that they might feel a bit alienated by the um by the opulence. Colonel Parker apparently was also unhappy about the fact that they were sort of virtually discussing a league table of who was the biggest attractions, um, whether it was Streisand or Sinatra or Elvis, Parker always thought, you know, everybody, there's room for everybody. Everybody can just basically work in their own universe and it's not a it's not a competition. The issue of, of the fact that um, he's concerned about alienating some of the um, the less affluent fans, I think that that is um, that's something that appeals to me. And I know his faults have been well documented and we know um that you know he was far from perfect but there are a few little things about the old colonel that you know i think are to be admired yeah that's very colonel him having that that uh issue keep it simple elvis is a simple humble guy keep it simple but and i understand him bringing that up but it's almost pointless too because las vegas is about opulence anyways and you know joe blow who lives out in the sticks what is he sitting when he's sitting there thinking in his bedroom watching Carson late at night? He's thinking Vegas. He's thinking that's that's the pinnacle. And then he goes to his local movie house and sees Presley there in Vegas, and he sees the opulence. I mean, it would it just it just would have drove tourism. I think it it's a confirmation. See, I was right. Vegas. Look at that. I got to get there. I got to go there because look at that hunk of meat. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Colonel always had his own way. And to bring that up makes sense for me, knowing what I know about Colonel. But to me, that was just more a, a, a diamond, you know, a, a, a glistening thing, a reason to go there. The film was actually released in November. Was that a particularly fast turnaround? For, because they didn't really finish principal photography until September for that first uh, stadium show. I mean, obviously, they would have perhaps been editing and um, getting things together. But, it, you know, from summer to virtually Thanksgiving seems to be a very quick turnaround to get the film actually in theatres. Seemed pretty fast to me, too. But I think great. This is what's happening now. Get it out there. I mean, I guess it was winter by that point, And, you know, people are in the theater seeing it over the holidays, whatever. And maybe it gives them six months to save up for the next Vegas season, the next summer, or for the next time Elvis was going to be there. Wow, good for them in a couple of months. They, they edited the footage together. They had all the raw footage. And then it's up to the, the editor that we, we spoke about get it together and get it out. So good for them. It was a document of what's happening then. So that was timely. I think it's great. So number 22 at the box office didn't seem like, I mean, it got some very nice reviews. I don't think it got, there was, I don't think there was too much negativity. Um, a newspaper in Chicago essentially called it a commercial for future Las Vegas engagements, which probably would have made Colonel Parker very happy and was obviously yes, the idea. Yes. And the village voice that uh, said that uh, very hurtful thing about one of our favourite um, interviewees um, was quite com yeah. was quite complimentary as well. Um, so it's interesting too. Um, earlier, I just alluded to this article by Jerry Hopkins from September the seventeenth, nineteen seventy, in Rolling Stone. Now, Jerry Hopkins was an Elvis biographer. He wrote. Uh, Elvis in 1971 and Elvis the final years in 1981 um, had also written some other stuff on Elvis and, and music generally Nick Naff, Nicholas Naff who we also met in the film, the director of 
publicity said something very interesting about Elvis's effect on Las Vegas and the hotel. He said, Elvis changes the entire metabolism of the hotel and he's singularly significant in one regard. There is constant occupancy. For Tom Jones, they fly in, they fly out. Elvis has such a following, so many fans. For him, they fly in, check in, and stay for the month. Wow, that's a... And I mean, these guys have no reason to make this up. I mean, they've seen all the stars come and go. So, for him to say that, that's fascinating. So, people, again, we're talking about Joe Blow, who, who, who is a, a regular simple Joe. He has, he has saved up. I mean, if he's staying in Las Vegas for any length of time. So, fascinating that he would say that because you can always compare the artists and Sinatra is Sinatra and guys of his ilk. Tom Jones was huge in the desert at the time. So, for him to say that, I hadn't heard that. That's fascinating. Um, another interesting thing here in Jerry Hopkins' article, that in the February engagement of 1970, the Mater D and the showroom waiters split $300,000 in tips for the month. There's the influx of capital and what, what a performer, you know, does to a whole town. I mean, even the guys, yeah, bussing tables, they love it when the man comes to town because that's amazing. That's big money back then. Just one more thing from this article. Uh, apparently, the colonel gave Dennis Sanders the last-minute instructions, which were, now, don't go winning an Oscar for this picture because we don't have any tuxedos to wear to the celebration. Again, vintage <laughs> colonel. God, I, I'd have to get a robe made with Oscar night blasted all over it or something yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, um, boy. Thank you very, very much for um, taking the time and doing all the uh, all the work that you did to prepare for it. It's been absolutely tremendous. It's been great to take part, and and you you throwing this down to me has made me really dig in to the film and and reassess it, and even you know meet people like Ann Moses, who was a new name to me, and and just to see the film in a different way and to which it just increases my appreciation of it. So thank you very much. Did a great job. Gary, obviously your website, Soul Ride Blog, is um, essential reading. There's some great stuff uh, on Elvis there and on lots of other things as well. I would thoroughly recommend everybody to go there and immerse yourselves in that. It's absolutely wonderful. And where else can you be heard? You're on the Cocktail Nation podcast. Is that right? Correct. Uh, Coop Cooper's CocktailNation.net is the website to go to for all the links to his great show there. And yeah, he's a good guy to hook up with. He's got a great show weekly and then an evenings at the penthouse show throughout the week, which is all nice, uh, mellow cocktail music for y'all. So he did cocktailnation.net. Please stick around till after the credits because Gary and I just run through a list of suggested reading, viewing and listening and uh, discuss one or two of the research sources that we used when we were putting this all together. And there'll be links and uh, some extra background information on the companion newsletter to this podcast. In consideration of the use of potentially copyrighted material purely for the purposes of commentary and critique, we're guided by principles set down by the Centre for Media and Social Impact School of Communications at American University. Thank you to Steve Collins for technical support. Thank you to Gainesville for writing and performing the original theme music, especially for us. This has been George Fairbrother, and thank you for listening. 
Original music by Gainesville. Keeping the spirit of Tom Petty alive in Europe and playing great classic rock and roll. Check them out at gainesville-band.de and link to their socials. The Deck 4 podcast is also brought to you in association with tellmewheretogo.com. If you love travel, now more than ever, it's important to listen to the experts. The Armstrong and Burton book series, Dark Secrets Haunt Powerful Families in 1980s Britain, available from Amazon and book retailers everywhere. Find out more, link to the Deck 4 web and Facebook pages and subscribe to the Deck 4 newsletter, all at georgefairbrother.com. Suggested reading and uh, additional watching and listening. Um, if uh, you know, we've uh, hopefully uh, inspired a little interest in Hollywood and Las Vegas and Elvis around this time. Uh, I'll just kick off with a couple of things. Um, if you're interested in Hollywood and what was happening in Hollywood around this time, there's a fantastic book by Peter Biskind called Easy Riders Raging Bulls. There's also a documentary um, as well, and that is talking about the changing of the guard effectively you've got Warren Beatty trying to explain to Jack Warner why Bonnie and Clyde is is such a great movie and that is a really um, fantastic uh, book and documentary so that is um, well worth looking at. I alluded to previously um, Gary's articles on um, Soul Ride blog about Elvis and movies um, are absolutely enlightening and brilliant and we'll put a link up on the newsletter. So Gary, have you got any suggestions for the people that have been very kind to still be listening to us um, at this point? (laughs) Well, definitely, you know, the film we've been talking about itself, I mean, watch it with different eyes and appreciation for it. The 2001 version is a fascinating companion. Um, I always go back to Peter Goralnik's stunning biographies of Elvis, his two parts, uh, Last Train to Memphis and Careless Love. Um, The interviews he did are staggering. Um, Alana Nash's book with the Memphis Mafia is 900 pages of fascinating interviews and behind the scenes stuff. Yes, from a certain perspective, but it's fascinating too. But that's where I always start with Goralnik's books um, on Elvis. Uh, Just about everything that ever happened and every perspective on it can be found there in a good journalistic way. No slants and uh, very, very interesting. That's that's where I would start for sure. Something I'd also like to recommend, uh, BBC World Service uh, do uh, documentary podcasts and uh, they did one... um a few years ago called Las Vegas Stripped Bear. And that was a really fascinating radio documentary about Las Vegas past and present. It was hosted by a Las Vegas limo driver named Adele Edelman, who um, I just only just found out sadly passed away a year or so after she made this documentary. But that's on um, the BBC World uh, Podcasts uh, website. But once again, we'll be putting a link to that as well. Elvisconcerts.com. It's a website run by Francesc Lopez, and that has a great database and pretty much anything that you need to know about Elvis on stage in the 70s, concert stats, schedules, jumpsuits worn, attendances, uh, concert reviews, everything is there. Um, We thoroughly recommend that. Um, Gary, anything else? 
No, I think we pretty well covered it. Yeah, there's there's lots to learn and lots to know, and it only helps you understand an artist or a film better to educate yourself a little bit, and uh, it increases your appreciation of anything. So dig in and, and learn stuff. I would I would recommend. So we'll also link to the the full Rolling Stone article, which you can. There's no paywall on that. You can just um, uh, click on that and read Jerry Hopkins' work there. Um, and I'll also put a link to Cricket Coulter's. Uh, brief YouTube clip from Elvis Week 2011 where she talks about her relationship with Elvis that was certainly not made apparent uh, through um, through the film. Here we go about the, uh, and this is uh, Glenn D. Harden was interviewed and uh, he said the hotel opened July 4th with Barbara Streisand. They couldn't keep it full with Elvis. It was full. We had him sitting in the aisles and the fire marshal was saying, look, you've got to get these tables out of the aisles. And they were saying, look, just be quiet. We'll get you a seat in the front next week. <laughs> so. Hey, the good old days, man. <laughs> <laughs>